0: Let me begin by noting many readers assume that the slavery in the New Testament is equivalent to the race-based slavery of the uh, African slave trade in the 17th and 18th century of America. And that's not exactly correct. In the ancient world, there were many different kinds of slaveries. Uh, the worst would occur if you were a prisoner of war <laughs> And you were sentenced as a galley slave to row in a boat or to work in the the Roman mines for the rest of your life. And history, in fact, does record that many prisoners of war soldiers would commit suicide instead of being captured and enslaved by the Roman Empire. But there were also milder forms of slavery in the empire. A person could become a slave for a set period of time in order to work off debts. There was no such thing then as bankruptcy, so oftentimes someone would voluntarily become an indentured servant for years until those debts were paid. Here's a staggering statistic. It's estimated that as much as 40% of the Roman Empire were slaves in the first century. Unlike African slavery, these slaves were not distinguishable by, from free persons by virtue of their race or their speech or their clothing. You know, Romans, uh, Roman slavery wasn't race-based. They were happy to enslave just about anyone. Um, and, and unlike African slavery, Greco-Roman slavery was not lifelong. It is estimated by historians that the average tenure of a slave in the first century was between 10 and 20 years, which given life expectancy in the first century is still a very long time, but it wasn't lifelong necessarily. And unlike African slavery, slaves in the first century held what we would consider professional positions in the society. You know, the idea, the goal of the Roman life, the Greco-Roman life, was to if you were rich, to lead a life of complete leisure and to have everyone else do the work. It was your slaves in the first century who were your doctors and professors and administrators. And sometimes they were even more highly educated than their slave masters. And sometimes they could even have slaves of their own. So slave Andronicus here is a professor at the local university And is the slave of a wealthy Roman equestrian, Olympiatus. Andronicus functions as the administrator in the house of Olympiatus. And he also has five of his own slaves who function as the workers in his own house. Now if you hear that and you think that that sounds kind of strange and complex, well it is. And what about the title of the sermon today, The Emancipation of Slaves? I will talk about emancipation. But you know what? None of them did. See, slavery in the ancient world was as gravity is to us. We take it for granted that gravity just is. It's a thing. You, You always can rely upon it. The thought that Slavery should be abolished? That was a thought that literally never occurred to anybody, not even to the slaves. Yes, you heard me right. The slaves weren't abolitionists or emancipationists. The thought of owning somebody else's personal property was simply never questioned by anyone. In all this background, I'm not saying to you that Greco-Roman slavery was somehow better than African slavery. Uh, oftentimes, it, it was just as bad. Slaves were sexually abused at, at will. They were, they were often used as sex slaves if they were women. They had no rights in a court of law. They had no voice They could be tortured and executed for even trivial offenses. It wasn't better than African chattel slavery. Sometimes it was, but mostly it was just different. And I give you all this background in order to uh, prepare to read Philemon today. When Paul writes the book of Colossians, so we've been studying the book of Colossians for the last since maybe the beginning of September, the last couple of months, and we're near the end of the book. I think next Sunday will be the last sermon in the book of Colossians. But when Paul writes Colossians, we think that uh, he, was, he was imprisoned, certainly. I think he was most likely imprisoned in the city of Ephesus, which was about 100 miles to the west of Colossae. During his time in Ephesus, he had a fruitful ministry before he was imprisoned. Uh, He shared the gospel with many people, and one of the people he came into contact with was what we think was uh, a runaway slave from the city of Colossae by the name of Onesimus. As best we can recount or, or retell the history, Paul shares the gospel with Onesimus Onesimus is converted. He believes. Then Paul's imprisoned. And then Onesimus ministers to Paul while he is in prison. Because if you were in a Roman prison cell, uh, they didn't provide you with three meals a day and clothing. You literally got your meals and and all of your your clothing and your blankets, etc. All of those came from friends on the outside. And Onesimus was likely one of these. So from prison cell, Paul writes... The book of Colossians, and he writes this letter, what we call the letter uh, to Philemon, and then he sends these two letter, letters back with one of his workers that was there, Tychicus, who carries these letters, the hundred miles from Ephesus back to Colossae, but Tychicus doesn't go alone. Onesimus, Paul has, has uh, convinced, or Onesimus has decided on his own accord that is a runaway slave, he will return to his master. So he goes with Tychicus bearing these two letters. A Roman slave, uh, a runaway slave, who could be tortured, who could be incarcerated for the rest of his life. It was a very dangerous proposition for him to return. And I love this letter. I think this letter is perhaps though it's the shortest in the New Testament, is perhaps the five most important letters in all of the, of the New Testament um, because of its revolutionary implications. And that's what I want to show you today. So let's read it. A lot of background, I know. Thank you for listening. Philemon one, 1 we read on page 9 of your bulletin. I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, and also to Aphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers, because I hear about your love for all his saints and your faith in the Lord Jesus. it is as done other than Paul, an old man and now a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. And right there is a play on words, because the name Onesimus in the Greek means useful. And so Paul then uses a similar Greek word and says, Formerly he was useless to you, presumably, because... He he had run away and was a a bad slave. But now he has returned to you in in the most useful way possible, as he'll explain. Verse 12. I am sending him who is my very heart back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you would you do would not seem forced, but would be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He's very dear to me, but even dear to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. Thank you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for this your word. Help us to treasure it and understand it through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Today's sermon is not going to immediately improve the quality of your life this week, but I felt compelled to preach this because it touches on one of the biggest objections that exists against Christianity. In our circles today. Namely, that Christianity condones slavery and that the Bible was, it was, in fact used to support slavery in the 19th century. Uh, and so as a result of that, uh, for many people you have a conversation with, the Bible just completely lacks any credibility as a moral guide and instructor for, uh, for, for anyone today. And what I want to try and do is show you briefly from Philemon is how how Paul, he doesn't condone slavery. He has this master plan to undermine slavery from the inside out. Let me show you how that happens. Now, admittedly, Paul does not wage a frontal assault on the institution of slavery. Sitting here in the 21st century in our comfortable easy chairs, we might wish that he had done so. But what we don't realize, or maybe we don't realize, is if if Paul had attacked directly the institution of slavery, if he had advocated for the immediate emancipation of all the slaves in the Roman Empire, guess what? Christianity would not have survived. Our tiny little faith would have been utterly crushed by them. And even if you say, well... He should have done it nevertheless because it's the right thing to do. Well, think about it. Forty of the, percent of the entire society are slaves. The entire economy is based upon slavery. If you thought the Bolshevik revolution in the 20th century led to death and indiscriminate anarchy, imagine what it would mean to advocate for the complete abolishment of slavery in first century Rome. It would be murderous chaos. Another effect it would have had is it would have undermined the even more important truth and news that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. It would have completely overshadowed the gospel. I mean, think about it this way. If every, if every pastor in America stood up in his pulpit this morning and declared fossil fuels are ruining the world and what God calls us to do is to get rid of anything that is petroleum-based or dependent, we must throw it away Incidentally, we may discover in another hundred years that, in fact, that's what we should have said. That fossil fuels are ruining the world. But if I said that today, guess what? If every pastor said that today, guess what? That's what's on CNN and Fox News. And the message of the gospel is utterly overshadowed. So while no, this is not a frontal attack on the institution, what I want you to see is that what Paul aims to do is erode slavery from the inside so that it will wilt and die. I could put it this way. Paul is a computer programmer, and he has decided to insert a deadly virus into the mainframe, you know, into the system, deep into the system, so that this virus would slowly spread and bring the whole thing to a crashing end. So look, let's look and see how he does it. Verse five. I'm going to walk through about seven or so places in this short letter to show you how he does it, beginning with verse five. He writes, "I hear about your Philemon. I hear about your faith in the Lord Jesus and the love you have for all the saints." Paul begins by placing Philemon's relationship with Onesimus under the banner of love. And not under the banner of commerce. He says, I hear of your love for all the saints. Oh, by the way, Onesimus is now a saint. You must now think about your relationship with him in terms of love. Really, the whole argument, he tries to set it up under the banner of love. Knowing this, that if you are a slaveholder and you think deeply about what it means to love another human being... Especially the love of, say, 1 Corinthians 13, 1 Corinthians 13 kind of love, and your, and your slaves, you begin to feel how great an incompatibility is that you would own them as personal property. So he sets it under the banner of love. Secondly, verse 8. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you, again, on the basis of love. What Paul is doing is he's modeling, isn't he, how love operates. See, Paul has a relationship with Philemon that is on the basis of love, and therefore he models what he wants the relationship between Philemon and Onesimus to be. It is on... The appeal of love. Not, he says, I don't command you to do what you ought to do. I could command you. I could give you a law that you have to obey. I'm your superior. I could you tell you to do this or this. But instead, I will appeal to you under the basis of love. He's, he's obviously, he's trying to rework how the relationship operates. Verse 10. I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Here it's as if he is saying, remember Philemon, that however you receive this man, and however you deal with this man, you are dealing with my child. He says, someone who is very dear to my heart. You are dealing with someone who is like my son. He is my very own son in the faith. And so I want you to treat him as you would treat my own flesh and blood. Verse thirteen. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. But I did not want you to do anything without your consent, so that any favor you would you do would not seem forced, but would be voluntary. Again, the emphasis is not on coercion. He wants to avoid coercion, and he wants to Philemon to make his decisions about Onesimus voluntarily, out of love. Verse 15 and 16 are, are the, the ones for me that just pack the greatest punch. He says, Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was so that you might have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. Those are, those are strong words. No longer as a slave. Like I can almost imagine as this letter is being read in this house church for the first time, When whoever was the reader says, you could have him back forever, no longer as a slave. There'd be a collective gasp in the congregation to think no longer as a slave, but as a dear brother. Powerful words. Verse 17. I want you to receive him as you would receive me. That is Philemon. How would you treat me? Relate to me, receive me, will treat your former slave and now your brother in that same way. And then finally, verse 18, Paul says that if he's stolen anything from you, if he's Jean Valjean'd you and stolen the silverware, I want you to be like the priest who um, forgives it, or I will pay back the debts. He says, verse 18, if he has done any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. And this would no doubt shame Philemon if he had any thoughts of re- demanding repayment because Paul's in prison and he doesn't have any money to pay for anything. So, so do you see what's happening here? You take a little pinch of leaven And you work that leaven into the center of the dough, and what happens? It begins to permeate. Uh, And no, so uh, what is the leaven? What is the leaven? The leaven is love. The leaven is the gospel. The leaven is our brotherhood and sisterhood in Christ. The leaven is all of the great things that are said about us, as we've read so far in the book of Colossians. But if you put that into the center of the institution of slavery, that will eventually kill it. That is a poison for the institution itself. That's why famous theologian, Miroslav Volf, he said that this kind of teaching so transforms the master-slave relationship, while it may still be there in form, the servant is still to work for his employer, quote, Slavery has been abolished even if its outer shell remains. Amen? I think that's uh, just a powerful way to look at this. So imagine a Sunday in the house church of uh, Archippus and what is her name? Achaia. Some rich and wealthy Christians who um, had a church in their house. Imagine the people who walk inside uh, um, the church service. Incidentally, we think that most of the early church services were very early in the morning <laughs> because the slaves in the empire would have to work during the day. So you would be having like sunrise services, six in the morning services in order to accommodate the Christian slaves. But imagine them walking up to the door of this nice estate and there they are greeted By the owners of the home, Archippus and Achaia, with a holy kiss on both cheeks. A free man with a slave. And they're welcomed in as family, as brothers and sisters. Please come in. Let us wash your feet. Let us uh, give you some refreshments. They come through the door of the church. They sit down. You have a slave sitting next to a master, sitting next to a free man, sitting next to... They're all singing the same hymns together. They're all praying the same prayers together. They, they're all alike. They're all in their brotherhood and sisterhood. And they're all sitting at the same family meal. We are all family. And maybe even as they pass the bread among themselves, they, a slave would look at a master and say, the body of Christ given for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. Um, I think it's in all of these ways that Paul intended to undermine this this wicked institution. Okay then, Brad, if that is all true, why did it take so long for slavery to be abolished? Why? Why did it take so long? I have several answers to that question. The first is maybe a pedantic answer, but... <laughs> Uh, long is a relative term, right? Long compared to what? If human beings have been on this earth as long as most scientists maintain, and if slavery has been part of all human societies for as long as anthropologists maintain, then 1,700 years to abolish an institution like that is actually not all that long. If humans have been doing this for as long as we have. Now it feels long. It, it feels very much too long for us. I say 17, 1,700 years or so because it was the Roman Catholics who really led the way in the abolishment. They were the ones who spoke out before the Protestants did about the abolishment of slavery. And they were speaking loudly in the 18th century. Us Protestants, we didn't speak with a very loud, unified voice until uh, the 19th century. But, but it's, I would push back just gently that, relatively speaking, this was fast to overcome this. Um, secondly, it does feel long, though. And I think it just goes to show how truly wicked our hearts are. Like, it, Christians should have clued in by virtue of love and brotherhood, that this is wrong. They should have clued in much quicker, and the reason they didn't is because mostly greed. Greed and economic advantage. And I guess there's one other major factor sociologists point to, and that is we didn't really come up with the idea of individual human rights for a long time. Like for most of human history after Christ, we have operated mostly tribal herd instincts where we never looked at another human being and said, you have individual rights. That was a very late development. Um, And then finally, the last answer I would uh, give to that question, why did it take take so long, is is simply God's timing often takes long. We could point to so many instances in our life where it felt like God was late, <laughs> like why did it why did it take so long for this or that to happen? Um, it oftentimes does when it's working according to His time time scale. Those of you who are here this morning and you're not a Christian, you don't believe, um, and you maybe you did have this objection to Christianity if you thought about it. I want to ask. I just rhetorically ask to you: Do you know? Do you know? how slavery in the world was abolished. Like, who who abolished slavery? Do we know? Was it the secular atheist professor at the local university in the 19th century? Was it your secular humanists? It wasn't. It was Christians who abolished slavery. It was British Christians who... um, they were the driving impetus for the abolishment of the slavery in the 19th century. And it was basically, they ran through legislation through Parliament, and then they used British gunboats to stop the slave trade across the Atlantic Ocean. It was, it was Christians who did this. It was William Wilberforce. And if you haven't ever watched the movie, it's titled Amazing Grace. It, it was put out in 2006 by uh, the story of Wilberforce and how uh, his campaign against the slave trade in the British Empire. It's a fantastic movie. How many of you have seen that before? It's quite good. You, you might note, I don't remember if it's in the movie or not, but Wilberforce quotes the book of Philemon on the floor of Parliament as he's making his speech for the abolition of slavery. But we must also uh, acknowledge the sad truth that it was also Christian slaveholders in the antebellum South who used the Bible to justify racism and slavery. They quoted the Bible. They quoted Philemon to support race-based slavery. They said, look, Paul, Paul made Onesimus go back to his master. What should you do with a runaway slave? Well, Paul just shows us you're to send him back to his master. And they, they made these arguments. Um, nothing that i can nothing i can think of has done more to harm the credibility of the gospel message in the 21st century than what those guys did in the 19th century really because now people do not look to the bible at all as a moral authority because the bible is used to support something we know that is Grievously wrong. And that is something, there is much to grieve there, and there is much for us to do and as Christians to even reflect on how did they reach their conclusions? How did they use their Bibles in order to get those conclusions? We need to learn from that so that we never make that mistake again. I believe that Abraham Lincoln was right to say that the Civil War was a manifestation of the judgment of God upon our country. It was. Uh, and upon the church. There is much to grieve. So in conclusion, I know this is a very non-traditional sermon topic. Why have I gone into all of this detail? Because I want you to be able to give credible answers to legitimate hard questions that people ask. When one of your friends in a friendly conversation, not in an internet chat room, but a friend in a friendly conversation asks about this, doesn't the Bible condone slavery you could say to him, actually, there's a whole letter in the Bible that's devoted to this to- topic, and it's short. Let's read it together. And it's really easy for you, if you just walk through Philemon, you can show all the ways that Paul is undermining the institution there. Uh, do that. Engage that way, winsomely. Number two, I've gone into all of this detail because if you are a young person, I want you to have confidence that God's word is intelligent and wise. Um, God was wise to do it this way. He was wise not to do the frontal assault, which would have led to anarchy, but to, to kill it from the inside. And Some of you are going to go off to college and you're going to hear all sorts of things about what the Bible says and what the Bible does and how the Bible is oppressive. And I want you to know that the Bible, when handled rightly, uh, is is the power of God and the wisdom of God. I want you to have that confidence. And then finally, I want us all to remember uh, that Christianity, it's always been a slave's religion. There was a reason that slaves flocked into the church of the 1st century and the 4th century and the 10th century. And even in the 19th, 18th and 19th centuries, Christianity has always been a religion of the slaves. Why? Because, it, because Christ purchased our freedom. And because Christ, in the words of Philippians 2.5, uh, Paul says, I want your attitude to be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a slave. The Greek word there is doulos. It's not servant. Is slave. The reason that slaves became Christians is because they saw God became one of us. There's a very famous Roman who wrote a treatise on how you were to care for or really rule your slaves in the first century. And one of the things, I mean, this would have been known and read by all the Roman slaveholders. One of the things it says in there is the way you are to give your slaves drink that your slaves are supposed to drink, they're to be given sour wine to drink. Sour wine, does that sound familiar at all? It was sour wine that Christ was given on the cross. Oh, a cross. What? A cross was a slave's death. If you were a freeman, you couldn't even be crucified by the Romans. It was only Revolutionaries and slaves that were crucified. Crucifixion was a punishment uniquely reserved for them. And why do they flock into the church? They said, because my God, He has become one of us. Amen.